0: to Mark chapter 9. Mark is going to speak to us this morning about an amazing event that takes place in the middle of his Gospel. Jesus had revealed Himself as we know, saying, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And when he was declared Messiah, the Son of God, he said this is right. He, he ex- uh, helped them understand that this is truth. And then he explained how he needed to suffer and die. Peter rebuked Jesus for that. Uh, Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, uh, Peter had the devil in his mouth uh, out of ignorance and... Uh, Jesus went on to show, and what we have now is the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ on earth in the Gospels. It goes well beyond Him simply being Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah. We now see through the transfiguration exactly who Jesus is. And so we begin here in Mark 9 and it says, He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now that statement is a very important statement. He's not talking about His second coming. He's talking about the transfiguration that the three among the twelve are going to see. The reason we say this is because Peter records it in 2 Peter one sixteen. Do you remember when uh, Peter uh, had this experience... Jesus calls Peter, James, and John up to the mountain of transfiguration, and he starts out chapter 9 saying, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. So they're going to somehow see, be transformed, have the vision, and see the glory of heaven and the power of the kingdom even before they die. Usually you go to heaven when you die. But this is an experience they're going to have as Jesus shows them on the mountain. Peter talks about it in Second Peter when he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He's making direct reference to the transfiguration. He said, we were eyewitnesses to the power and the glory of Christ on this mountain. And so that's his declaration, that Jesus says they're going to see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now they can't fathom that. I mean, first of all, Peter's trying to get a hold of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah they got to deal with what that means. And then when Jesus says the Messiah must suffer as the suffering servant of Isaiah, Peter can't handle that. But wait a minute, Peter. You're not going to be able to handle this next thing. You're going to see the kingdom and power of who he is. There's an unveiling here. And so we go on and it says this in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and He was transfigured before them. Now this is interesting because what, what Mark is illustrating here is this is the same thing that took place when Moses went up to Mount Sinai. Moses was up in Mount Sinai six days And we see the same reference to the six days. And Moses brought with him Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And so Jesus brings with him Peter, James, and John. Nadab and Abihu were brothers, so are James and John. We see a very similar reference to Jesus and Moses ascending the mountain of God. It says, in fact, that Jesus was transformed before them transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Huh? Now there's commercials for oxidol and oxyol and, and all kinds of bleach. Nothing on earth can shine the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. He was transfigured. The Greek word for that is metamorphos metamorphosis, it's the same word used in Romans chapter 12 when we are to have our minds renewed by the gospel, be transformed by the renewing, by the metamorphosis of your mind. There's a transfiguring that goes on. And the point being is as Jesus was transfigured and they're going to have an experience to see him transfigured, we must be transformed as well. Your vision of Jesus must go through a metamorphosis from what you think you know about Him to see Him in His glory, in His power, and in His might, to see Him unveiled as King of kings, Lord of lords. Some of you think He's your Messiah. Some of you think He's your Savior, and He is, but that's not enough. You've got to be metamorphized. You've got to be transfigured in your mind, renewed to understand He's more than that. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He will never change. He is the God of this universe. He will rule and reign forever and ever. He is holy. He is majestic. He is mighty. I don't know if you've been there yet, but it's a place of overwhelming transfiguration. That's what happened before their eyes. He was transformed as they saw the radiance of His glory. And then it says that there appeared with him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, how do you think they knew that was Elijah and Moses? They never saw Moses and Elijah. They couldn't Google Moses and find a reference or a picture. They didn't have any paintings of Moses and Elijah. How did they understand this is the great prophet Moses? Could it Did he have the Ten Commandments? Most paintings show Moses there with two blocks of stone. I don't know if he carried the stone with him in glory, but, uh, you know, uh, I'd be tired of carrying that law around with you all the time. I'm thinking that it was something in the Spirit, something that they understood and revealed to them, that this is Moses and Elijah. Well, how could Moses and Elijah be there when in fact... The resurrection hadn't taken place. What do we know about Moses? What we know about Moses is that it says that he died. In Deuteronomy, the last chapters, it says that God buried Moses. We don't know where he was buried. No man knows where Moses was. And it's interesting, in Jude chapter 9, I'm sorry, Jude verse 9, it says that Michael contended Satan for the body of Moses. What did God do with his body? What did God do with Moses? Uh, I don't know. But he was able to appear here with Jesus. And what we're going to see through this transfiguration is this is not just a showing and a revelation of Jesus coming as Messiah. It's the full revelation of his majesty and it also represents his second coming. That those who are dead shall be Raise and see him. And Elijah, the second witness there, isn't it interesting that we did not see him die? He was carried up in the chariot of fire into the heavens. And so those who are alive will be caught up as well. You see here right in the transform, uh, transfiguration, not only the first coming of the glory of Christ, but his second coming revealed to them that where those who are dead in Christ shall rise and those who are alive shall be caught up with him. And so you see the second coming revealed right before your eyes. Not only that, but Moses is the prophet of the law. He is the law and Elijah is one of the greatest prophets. So the law and the prophets testify to who Jesus is. It's an amazing sight. What are they talking about? Can you imagine that? What are they talking about? Do we have any hint? Do we have any idea what they could be talking about? Well, we do. Because it says that in Luke 9, verse 31, it says that, They appeared in glory and spoke about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah were talking about Jesus' departure, which he was about to do in Jerusalem. That word departure in the Greek is exodus. They were discussing his exodus that he was going to perform in Jerusalem. Now, anybody in that conversation know anything about an exodus? Moses sure did, didn't he? And Moses knew about the blood of the Lamb that was painted over the doorposts. He understood the sacrifice of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, for the exodus and the salvation of the people in bondage. Elijah, as the prophet, representing the prophetic word of God, is declaring that, yes, he must go to Jerusalem and he must die, as Isaiah declared, and as Jeremiah and all the rest of the prophets and Ezekiel said, that he would die and Give us a clean heart and a new heart and a new life. And so even the law and the prophets testify of what Jesus must do and die in Jerusalem. We know that because, remember, the two on the road to Emmaus also had the same lecture given to them by Jesus. And So, this is awesome. This is an amazing revelation. And then it goes on. And Peter sees this, and, and they're just they're dumbstruck to see this incredible vision. It's brilliant and glorious. And see Moses and Elijah and Jesus and, and them talking about what Christ must do, what Messiah must do in Jerusalem. And Peter said, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This is awesome. Let's stay here. And it says, I like verse 6, for he didn't know what to say. Because he was terrified. we sometimes have a tendency to speak out things that we don't know what we're talking about. I don't know. I agree with Peter. Man, I'd want to hang out there. I want this to last. But you know what? It, 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 Peter gets criticized for this statement saying, hey, come on, let's have a tent. Everybody hang out. We can have a party together. I don't want to leave. But in reality, what Peter's doing is he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. He's talking about the Feast of Booths, where where it represents the coming of Christ. And he's doing what a Jew would properly do and render the Feast of the Lord in the Feast of Tabernacles for the dwelling place of the Lord. And he's simply knowing what he knows and declaring, let's make the Feast of Booths. Let's set up our tabernacles because God is here on earth. He didn't know if this is going to stay. Messiah has come. Here it is, the end. And he's ready to do what you're supposed to do. Make a dwelling place. And just in that time and in those moments, he hears a thundering voice. As he sees Jesus, it says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Oh, do it again! You ever had an experience with God? And when it seems over, it's like, I want want to feel that again. Do that again. I want to sense that again. The glory of God fades so quickly in our lives, doesn't it? In our understanding. we can have an amazing time in the presence of the Lord. And we step out of this place and someone says, hey, you got a piece of gum or something. And it's gone. But there's a voice that comes out of heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now that's in reference to Moses and Elijah. Wow. Woo, Peter, James, and John. We saw the three big heavy hitters. We saw Moses. We saw Elijah. Now we saw the Messiah, Jesus. And God says, uh-uh, sorry boys. You, those two, get out of here. There's one I want you to listen to. Listen to my son. Listen to him. Now that is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where it is declared, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, said Moses, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. The father is quoting the prophecy that Moses spoke at that moment, and saying, according to Deuteronomy, This is my son, this is the one Moses talked about, listen to him. And they would directly understand that from the book of Deuteronomy this is Messiah, this is the one, this is the leader greater than Moses, the prophet, greater than all other prophets, the lawgiver above all lawgivers. This is the Son of God in our midst. Come on. If you don't have a revelation of who Jesus is, if you don't have a revelation to pay attention and listen to him, you've not been transformed enough. Is he your lawgiver or not? Is there still some contention as to who's in charge of your life? Is there still a little bit of a fight whether it's your way or his way? There needs to be a metamorphosis. There needs to be a transfiguration. There needs to be a renewing of the mind. You need to see Jesus greater than the law, greater than the prophets, and here it is, bigger than anything, greater than you. And I'm afraid that that image is still the largest one in our lives. I'm contending with it. I need to contend with it because I still run up against me versus Jesus. And I need to see him transformed in my eyes. Come on, you know the religious Jesus. Come on. You know Jesus, the Savior on the cross. You know Jesus, the resurrected Lord at Easter. You know the triumphant Jesus who's at the throne. But do we know him truly, transfigured in all his glory, beyond anything we could even ask or imagine, to see him for who He is. Because honestly, 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 before you, before God, if we knew Him like that, all of our lives would be drastically different. Pastor, I still got to work. Still got to get a job. I understand that. Still got to deal with my kids. I My car breaks down every other week. Still got to deal with all... I understand that. But we would face all those things in a different manner, if we had a greater revelation of who He was. Would you cry out with me this morning, Oh God, show me who You are in Christ Jesus in a greater way than ever before. This is My Son. Listen to Him. And that's a direct revelation of Deuteronomy 18. Then, sadly, is verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain... He told them, don't tell anybody what you saw. Come on. (laughs) At least not yet. We can put that caveat in there. At least not yet, because there will be a time where he says, all right, go. Tell everybody. Tell everybody what you saw and heard. In fact, let me show you the impact that this had on Peter. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, please. I'll wait for you to turn. 2 Peter, it's after Hebrews, it's after James, it's after 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter now is going to talk about what Jesus told him not to talk about at that time because now the, the, the resurrection took place. Now he's filled with the Spirit. Now he fully comprehends what happened and what he saw. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he says this, "...for we did not follow cleverly designed or devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty." For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What's he talking about? The transfiguration, right there. We heard the voice of God. Now, isn't it interesting? Why didn't Peter make, and of course Peter does make reference to the resurrection of Jesus. Peter makes reference to Jesus being risen from the dead and talking about him and and the day of Pentecost and all that. But there's something beyond the resurrection of Jesus, something beyond the outpouring of of the day of Pentecost, and that's what Peter is highlighting here. He realized that what he saw on that Mount of Transfiguration is in fact a greater glory than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead walking with them for 40 days. What they had a view into was the glory of his kingdom and majesty eternally, unkept in a human form, but fully revealed. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, when Jesus walked with them 40 days in a resurrected body, he wasn't glowing, he wasn't brilliant and shining. Of course, that's Jesus in a new body, resurrected, walked through the door of the upper room. But it wasn't in the majestic way he saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter is talking about a coming and an appearance and a knowledge of Christ that is even beyond what he understood from Pentecost, and what he understood from the resurrection. This mount of transfiguration, are you getting this, is a full revelation. They couldn't take it too long. I think this thing happened in a matter of minutes, to be honest with you. Because I think their skin would have melted off their bones if it would have lasted any longer. I really do. I think that their mind could have unraveled. They couldn't have handled this kind of a a revelation of who Jesus was. I believe it happened for an instant. Hey, isn't that Elijah? Isn't that Moses? Hey, can we build you tents? This is my beloved son. I think it happened that quick. And, And he lived with that burned in his mind and in his understanding. And when later he writes about the glory and the kingdom, he writes about the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, we didn't make up these stories. I heard it on that mount. I heard God's voice. There are three men that heard the audible voice of God, boom, through Earth's atmosphere, audibly into that mountain. That affected him. He said, I saw the glory. That's the glory yet all of us are going to see. How many of you can't wait for this kind of glory? Come on, we need resurrected bodies just to fathom it. He wanted a booth to live in. He said, you live in that booth, you're dead in two more minutes, kid. (laughs) You cannot see God and live. I mean, he saw the image of the invisible God right before him. And so it had to move on. But we're going to see that glory. We're going to see that glory. And that's what Peter said. I'm writing about something I saw. I didn't get this handed down from anybody else. I saw it. I heard it. And I'm an eyewitness to the glory and majesty of Christ. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. He repeats it on the day of Pentecost when he starts preaching about Jesus. Turn to Acts 3. All right, I know you know where Acts chapter 3 is. And we're going to go to verse 22. Acts 3, 22. Peter is preaching. He's speaking at Solomon's portico. It's where the church would gather. They had just healed the man at the gate, beautiful. People are amazed at what's going on. People want to come and hear what's going on. And in Acts 3, 22, Peter says this, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. What is he quoting right there? Deuteronomy 18, it's what he heard. Do you see When I tell you that what he heard on that mountain, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Peter knew that was Deuteronomy 18. He's preaching it here. He's preaching it here. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Reference to who else on that Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He's preaching what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let me ask you something. Are you preaching Jesus? Are you preaching a Jesus that you learned from a book? Are you preaching a Jesus that you remember your Sunday school teacher taught you, but you yourself have no experience and knowledge of? The people need someone who will tell them about an experience they have knowing Jesus. Do you know Him as your Savior? Can you talk about the day you gave your heart to Jesus Christ? Can you talk about the sense and the knowledge of the forgiveness for your sins that you are forever changed because you know He touched you? Then you've got something to say. Some of you can say, he healed me. He healed my heart. I was this way, but now I'm that way. Some of you can say, he cleansed my mouth. I used to spew out filth, but he changed the way I talk. Now you got something to talk about experientially. The people are looking for a church that has met Jesus. They don't need a church that studies Jesus. They need a church that lives Jesus. You've met him, you've been transfigured, you've been forever changed. God's looking for a people, not to go to Sunday school, but to come to him. Oh, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Right? He doesn't say, come to church and sit in a pew, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Don't preach the church, don't preach the pew, preach Jesus. an experience of who he is. That's what Peter's preaching. Peter's preaching what he saw and heard. He's preaching his testimony. All of a sudden, uh, the law comes alive. Peter, what do you know about the law? Well, I'll tell you, I know Moses. He looks like this and he looks like that. (laughs) I saw him. What do you know about the prophets? I I saw Elijah. Now, all of a sudden, all of this is opening up to him. Because he heard God quote a scripture to him. How many of you have heard God quote a scripture to you? Pretty much all of you. Because you learned John 3.16, but then you lived John 3.16. How many of you have lived John 3.16? All right, God, talk to you that verse now. You see what I'm saying? Now, when you're studying the Bible, you got the Holy Spirit telling you these verses. Come on, there's a marked difference between you and someone who studies Jesus. Do you understand this? You are needed. You are so necessary out there right now. This is your hour. This is the hour this nation needs you. This nation could be turned around by this church, by this number of people in these pews. We've got to take it that seriously. This city could be changed if we would all recognize we've had an experience with Jesus and we've been transformed. Oh, that's what happened to Peter. This thing affected him so radically that he began preaching it and speaking it. Now go back to our text in Mark chapter 9 and it says that as they were coming down the mountain in verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Then you can go tell him. You can go tell them. But see, they're still not convinced of this Jesus rising from the dead and being put to death. This is kind of confusing. I don't understand it. We saw him in his glory. Couldn't you just stay like that? Why don't you just stay like that? I think, you know, you could win everybody's heart if you would just do that. But that would not save mankind, would it? There had to be the sacrifice of blood to satisfy the judgment of God against sin. And so he goes on and he says this, so they kept the matter to themselves, <laughs> questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Peter, yeah, John, uh, what happened? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Just keep it to yourself. What if Thomas asks us, don't tell him nothing. Don't tell Thomas Nothing just leave it alone well what do you mean dead why would he die look at him he's glory I don't just I I don't know many of you are in that place aren't you God when you're going to answer this prayer what are you going to do I know your greatness I know your glory how did this happen to us why is it happening I don't know but God in his perfect timing will reveal all things So it goes on, and in verse 11 it says, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And then he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things. And they're quoting Malachi. and, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now he already discussed that as John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah preparing the way. But he asked them a question, typical rabbinical response. They ask a question, the rabbi questions them back. But what of? How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? They couldn't figure that one out. They just don't know. Let me take you down to verse 30 now. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise up. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. (laughs) You remember last time Peter had an opinion on that doctrine. He got rebuked. So here it is. Jesus had to bring them to a place for them to understand he was Messiah, right? You remember that? They had to, he had to get them there. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. Son. Okay, we got that. You're good. Step one, I am the Messiah. Step two, I am the suffering servant. Peter said, no, no, you're not. Uh-uh, that ain't going to happen. So he has to keep bringing that in. He then shows them his glory in the transfiguration that he is not only Messiah and suffering servant, but he is the glorious king of heaven, the Son of God. Those two things that they like, that one in the middle they don't get, suffering and you must die. And That's why Jesus chooses to use this phrase, Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he's killed after three days, he will rise. They don't get that. They don't understand it. And so this is the point. Jesus picks the title, Son of Man. This is a very important title for Jesus. It's a self-designated title that Jesus chooses. We know he's the Son of God. We know he's the Messiah. But Jesus doesn't go around calling himself the Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's 80 times this name is listed in all four Gospels put together. 80 times Jesus is called the Son of Man. 30 times in Matthew, 14 in Mark, 25 in Luke, 11 in John. It's Jesus' title that he picked for himself. The other disciples, the apostles, they didn't call him the Son of Man. In fact, even after the Gospels, Jesus rose from the dead, they do not use that title for him in any of their writings. You don't find the reference Son of Man to Jesus in the early Christian church for about 120 years. It's not there. It's the title Jesus chose for himself. Why? Because if he would have used the term Messiah, people would have misunderstood his purpose. Because everybody had an opinion of what the Messiah is supposed to do. If he called himself the suffering servant, they would have only looked to the suffering servant. If he called himself the son of glory, coming in the clouds of glory as the king of all, they wouldn't have seen that because he was just a man. The son of man encapsulates all three dimensions of who Jesus is. And Jesus chose that term so that they would come to grips with his ministry and who he was. First, he had a messianic ministry. He is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. But secondly, he must be the suffering servant who dies for all the sins of the world. They couldn't grasp that. In John 6.14 it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is the prophet who is to come to the world. Perceiving this, they went about and tried to force him to become king. See, they were looking for the Messiah to save them from Rome. Jesus wouldn't place himself in their definition. He gave another name for himself so they wouldn't call him Messiah because Messiah to them was a political leader. John 12, 34, the crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who's the Son of Man? Jesus is specifically using a term they couldn't figure out because you couldn't pigeonhole it. You couldn't have a preconceived idea. And that's our problem, brothers and sisters. I have to ask you, is your definition of Jesus contained to what you think a savior should be what you think a messiah should be what you could think but there is a title for jesus that is beyond our human comprehension i'm trying to blow your mind this morning with the majesty of who christ is he's not only your savior your healer your comforter your guide the spirit of all truth come on we can't contain him that's the reason he used this reference They were asking, okay, well, you're the Messiah. You're supposed to rule and reign forever. Peter says, let's stay in these booths forever. I get it. You're the Messiah. Yeah, I get it. He goes, no, i got to die. What do you? No, you don't. Yes, I do. I'm the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Then he goes on to introduce who the Son of Man is. He, the Messiah, must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter rebuked him and said, never. This won't happen to you. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. If you don't recognize Jesus as the suffering servant, then you are anti-Christ, anti-Messiah. You see, there's so many people anti-Messiah. You know, we talked about this. How many religions think Jesus is a good teacher? Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a Messiah to the Jews. Well, if you don't understand him as the one atonement for all of man's sin, you are anti-Christ. And so he had to expand their comprehension that he had to die for sins. And last of all, in Mark 14, when they're asking who he is, he says, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Son of man again, reference to Daniel 9, when the son of man shall rule and reign coming on the clouds, the majestic king. That's what Peter saw on the mount of transfiguration. So now Peter saw the Messiah. He saw the son of man in his glory, but he had yet to see the suffering servant. He fought that thing even to the end. How many of you know that? He fought it even in the garden, didn't he? I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. And he fought against Jesus' arrest. He fought against him having to suffer. Peter was actually working against what Jesus said he had to do. When do you think Peter got it? I think he got it after the resurrection. When are you going to get it? I don't know what this is doing. I think I'm done. Oh, no, I have a couple more slides. No, I'm done. That's it. So my question to you is this. This, this Mount of Transfiguration is, is mind-blowing in the Gospels. It, it's something that peaks outside the realm of the earthly understanding of Jesus. It goes beyond the resurrection. Come on. It goes beyond Him ruling and reigning right now. It goes into the realm of when He returns in His majesty and glory and when we will be transformed. There is an image of Christ yet to behold. Do you know that there are more prophecies about His second coming than there were for His first? It's coming. And He is going to transform every one of us into His likeness. What has to happen today is that we need a revelation of who He is. We need our minds renewed. And I'm calling out here for wherever you're at. Do you know Him as your Savior, the one who died for your sins? Do you know Him as the Messiah, the one who came to deliver you? Do you know Him as your healer? Do you know Him as the Prince of Peace? And above all of that, do you know him as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of all glory? And if we would begin to grasp this revelation, we should be transformed. We must be transformed. And there's only one way to be transformed. It's to see him high and lifted up. Let's bow our heads.